Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, parental suicide, PTSD, child abuse, bullying, war, life-changing injuries along with depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. That's what happens when you lose your father to suicide at six years old. How do you move through that darkness and create a better life for yourself and your family? We're going to have a conversation with an individual that experienced that and still gets through each and every day. He's going to share with you how you too, if you're going through the same thing and the same journey, can come out of it on the other side in a positive way. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Defying the Darkness. My guest in this episode is Dylan Sessler. He's a mental health coach, a professional speaker, a podcast host of The Dylan Experience. He's an entrepreneur. He's a combat veteran. And he's the author of the book, Defy the Darkness, a story of suicide, mental health, and overcoming your hardest battles. In January of 2020, Dylan began speaking on TikTok about mental health and trauma. By 2022, he had accumulated more than half a million followers supporting his daily content centered around having a realistic conversation about things like mental health, abuse, trauma, self-harm, and suicide. His relentless pursuit has allowed him to impact the lives of millions, while he also developed a platform to help society rethink human connection and mental health. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We've got a lot to talk about. Welcome to the show. Appreciate it, Michael. Thanks for having me. You know, your journey is... Uh, a very long one. It started at a very young age. And uh, you've come a long way since then. But how about we start at the beginning? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I'm a Wisconsin boy. Uh, Janesville, Wisconsin is where I where I started my life, but it uh, certainly isn't where I've ended my life. I'm uh, currently in Brookfield, Wisconsin with, with my wife. Yeah, it's kind of cold up there, isn't it? Uh, it is. And if you don't enjoy it, you don't enjoy it but I have learned to enjoy it through my, throughout my life. There you go. I moved from Colorado where I was used to the snow, about 8,500 feet up. And then I moved down to Arizona and became a wimp. <laughs> can't, can't go back to do Colorado what you gotta do, right? jacket. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk uh, about um, your, uh, your upbringing. Uh, I know that yeah. you had a traumatic incident at, about, at the age of six. Yep. So when I was when I was six years old, uh, my father committed suicide, uh, and and how that kind of uh, the the context around that is I think really important when you're you know looking at my life through a microscope. Uh, my dad, one morning, uh, I remember I remember looking at him when I came down in the morning. It was August twelfth, um, and I, I remember this day clearly. I don't think I'll ever forget it. I don't know if I can forget it. I think that's the nature of trauma. Um, I remember him coming, or I, I myself coming downstairs and seeing him and, and seeing my family, my, my mom and my sister in the room. And we were all in the kitchen. And I remember him telling 
us that he's he's got a meeting today or something along those lines, uh, and he's not going to be back until late tonight or possibly tomorrow. And as he spoke those words, and and maybe it was just the energy of the room, I felt that he wasn't coming home. I I've, I I don't know how to explain that feeling. That's that's still something that you know I think in many ways is really difficult to explain and expose and, and verbalize and, and put words to because um, I, I don't think human language can really be verbalized in that way. Um, but that feeling that in, intuition grabbed me, you know, it, it grabbed me by the stomach and the throat and made me feel instantly and tell me he's not coming home. You got to stop him. Right. And I, I remember as a six year old, just crying and, and grabbing his leg and telling him not to leave. Um, and, and wishing I could scream louder, you know, and, and to tell him to stop. But ultimately my dad was six foot seven. Um, and I was not, um, and so there was no way of me stopping him. And there's certainly no way in his mind that he was going to stop himself. So he, he obviously brushed me aside and I, I still remember this day watching him walk out the door, the front door and, uh, you know, the screen door closed. There's that cliche moment of watching, that last moment, that person walk out of your life and take that left, get into the car and he was gone. Um, you know, what we didn't know is he had his, he had a hunting rifle in his car. Um, and he went to a secluded park outside of Janesville and ended his life. Yeah. You know, people, a lot of people don't understand that PTSD is a post-traumatic stress disorder from any traumatic incident that happens within our lives. And, Something like that hitting you at six years old had has got to create like a whole multitude of of issues or you know thoughts and feelings and things that at that age was hard to probably comprehend absolutely it was it it, it was it was so diverse right and and so many different things happened all at once that you know that that intuition I think is one thing that people find hard to call trauma. Um, I certainly did. I know I did. Um, and that was just the start of it, right? It was, it was then in the aftermath of, I think where PTSD really comes from is an inability to process and where that starts is how people express to you, especially as a child, how they allow you to speak, how they kind of format your thoughts for you. Oftentimes is the case for a parent is trying to just not deal with the child oftentimes. And that's not to say my mom did anything wrong. It was, it wasn't actually my mom that, that brought up some of these issues. Um, some of my, some of my father's family, and this is something I haven't really talked about that much, but some of my father's family told me, uh, and I don't remember who, cause I was six, but I remember very specifically them telling me he was going to go to hell and that he was, he was a very sick man and he had a lot of problems. Um, and, at six years old, you don't understand that, right? And then also matched with that intuition of knowing he wasn't coming back. It was it was this feeling of not only was there guilt now, right? Because of that intuition and because I couldn't stop him and that regret that was built up from a six-year-old that had no understanding of the world. But now on top of that, there's shame. My father, right? The man who made me um, and the only man that really mattered in my life at the time, because I'm a six-year-old, was going to hell 
right? And I didn't understand the concept of hell and I didn't understand the concept of religion and how it was very much based in subjective understanding. Um, and, and there was no explanation. It was just, this is what's going to happen. There was no openness. And so I was ridden with guilt and shame and regret and fear. You know, what was the future going to be like? And that intuition more or less made me embarrassed. You know, that shame made me embarrassed of like, why should I, I shouldn't say anything about this because what if I was the one that didn't, didn't stop him? What, what if I was the one that, you know, caused this? And that's, that's the stuff that isn't talked about in terms of trauma, in terms of PTSD. It's, it's the, it's the little things that people yeah. do that make people silent and, and force people to become introverted rather than being able to experience express these things and expose these things really the expose the vulnerabilities of what shame and guilt and regret and fear and all of these difficult words have to offer. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's very profound and what you, that whole process and what you had gone through. Unfortunately, as we all know, and especially in here in America, you know, death isn't talked about on a regular basis. It's not discussed like in some other cultures and across the world that, either celebrate death or they're very open and honest about death, death being part of life. And yeah. here, you know, um, we went through a similar situation where my father's, when I was about your age, um, probably, I was probably nine, nine, 10, something like that. You know, we used to go over to this, uh, my father's friends. And um, one day we went over there and the guy just wasn't there. And all the cops were there and there was a gun laying on the table and, you know, I asked all about this. They carried the body out and it's like, what happened? And it was, we don't talk about it. You know, yeah. it just, just something bad happened and that's it. And I think that um, people should give kids more of an opportunity to, to have a better understanding of what actually takes place so that they can work through things like that. that's a lot for a six-year-old, you know, for you to have to shoulder right. a lot have to process and, and to, to kind of go through, which I, obviously, you know, all this, but, you know, I'm yeah. just listening to it from this side. It's, you know, you think about it and it, it kind of is, it's, it's disheartening to have to know that a six-year-old had to go through that and then move it forward and add the guilt and the shame that really didn't belong to you. Yeah, you're right. It absolutely didn't, didn't belong to me. So how'd you kind of manage that? How'd you cope with that as you started to grow? I don't know if coping is even a thing with that. I don't know. I don't know if I did, you know, I think I survived out of sheer stubbornness, right? I, I don't, I don't feel like there was, there was anything that I did that was able to dull that pain or, or suppress that pain. I felt it every single day of my life um, from that point on. And I was, and I did it in silence in many ways, you know, there were certainly emotional outbursts that I had, but, um, I didn't expose what that actually meant to my sister and my mom. I, I know they knew, right. I knew, I knew in many ways that it's not like I could really hide what this all was, what this was all about, but I would never dare expose it or, or share that vulnerability. Um, and so. Do you have an older sister or younger sister? older sister. Older she's sister. four, she's four years older. Uh, you know, and, and 
ultimately a couple of years after my, my dad passed away, my mom, uh, moved on to, uh, another man. And he, when we moved in with him, um, he would physically abuse me, uh, for anything I did wrong. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't get to the point of being out of control. Right. He was a very controlled and calculated man. Um, and so he would hit me from the small of my back all the way down to my calves, um, to the point where, you know, I would be sitting in a chair at school at, at nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I'd be, you know, constantly shifting around and, you know, not able to actually sit comfortably on my butt, uh, because it hurt, you know? And, and so I learned, I think really quickly after my dad, that pain was something I could manage. And I, and I, I grew into a high pain tolerance. Um, and I still, to this day have a very, very high pain tolerance. And I, and you know, that's probably not healthy. It's certainly that causes its own, its own un, unseen stress on, on myself and on my body. And I have to be careful with that. Um, certainly with my military career, but I think my, my coping started when I joined the military and, and, and following on after my mom left that man because she never knew about the physical abuse until finally one day she left him because of it. Uh, and the pain, right? Pain was my coping mechanism. I, I valued it. I wanted it. Um, and so I pushed myself and I think trying to make my dad proud or my, you know, what my perception of my dad was, uh, that was my coping mechanism. That was my only reason for living. Um, because after my dad died, it was, I, I told myself it made four rules, right? Cause my dad was an alcoholic. He was, uh, he, he had issues with drugs. He had issues with tobacco, obviously he killed himself. And so I made four rules based on those. I would never drink alcohol. I would never do tobacco. I would never do drugs and I would never commit suicide. And the first three have been the easiest rules I've ever had to follow. Um, but the last one was always the hardest because I felt that every single day, right? I, if I wasn't thinking about my dad's suicide, ultimately at one point in my life, I started thinking about my own and how I, I know I shouldn't do it, but I really want to because I want to either be with my dad or I just don't want to deal with this anymore. Um, or I'm, I feel like I'm worthless and I feel like I'm causing problems. Um, and it, it's a, it's a very, very complicated thought process to, to dig into, uh, to understand what it really, what it really means to be, to be suicidal. It's kind of a suicidal, what they call it, suicidal ideation. 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 Yep. There we go. I can speak English. I, I can. Um, it's sort of it's sort of when you get into that mode, and and that's what you think on a regular daily basis. It almost becomes normal. Yep. So how did you work your way out of that? How did you recognize that 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 was taking place like that, where you were literally able to take a proactive approach to help trying to solve it? Well, I, I didn't. Uh, up until a point, uh, that, that caught up with me. So I deployed to Afghanistan and found a new, a completely different perspective on life and death, obviously, uh, because that's not anywhere compared to suicide. It's something completely different. Um, but I came home with 
not only what I didn't understand is that I had PTSD before I, right. I went to Afghanistan, yeah. but I only recognized the reality of what PTSD was after Afghanistan. And so 2012, I went to Afghanistan, came home in 2013. I started to actually understand that these are symptoms of PTSD, but I've had them all, like most of my life. And so that was when the connection started being made to what I might have actually been facing. And it only made things worse. Like I never went to get professional help. Um, I was just so, there's so much, so much of a stigma back then that I just wouldn't. Um, and I didn't want to lose, you know, my military career. I didn't want to lose, you know, my, uh, whatever reputation I had or what, you know, it was just a lot of different things coming together to say, don't get help, figure it out. And so that obviously didn't work. And I found myself in 2015 with a gun to my head, uh, you know, on the, on, on the floor of my mom's hallway with a gun to my head and, and just completely lost, you know, and I, that moment was the moment that forced me to realize that I wasn't going to survive much longer if I didn't start changing this. Right. And so my rock bottom was, was the, was the punch in the face that, you know, that, that rung the bell for, you know, the boxing match of like, of me, right. I was fighting myself and, and I didn't realize I was actually fighting until I got punched in the face in 2015 by myself. And that's when I, you know, I finally gave myself a break. Uh, and I stepped into the question of why are you the way that you are Dylan? And that question it, it, it tore me apart for three days, you know, following that moment. And and I had to really come to terms with the fact that in many ways, not only was my situation created for me, it was also crafted by me. And that's a, a really hard thing to come up against, you know, and I don't, I don't say that in terms to, to blame <clears throat> myself or to have other people blame themselves for, for their situation. Um, it's simply an understanding that if you don't understand that you have a part to play in your story, in your future, you know, in, in everything that you do, you don't really understand how to take responsibility and take ownership of that moment. Um, and that's what I was doing. I had to, I had to take ownership of that and step into the fact that I could change my life. Didn't feel like it, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I certainly succumb to the same comments I get on social media of, you know, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. Like you don't understand. And, and I, I was saying all the same things that many people say on my videos, uh, you know, 10 years ago, but yet here I am. You know, it, it's, um, it's a valuable thing when you can have choice and you can make a choice and make a choice to do, to go take a step forward or take a step back. And it seems that you took a step forward, even though it was difficult. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. I mean, you, you absolutely have to. And I, the, the, I think it's unfortunate that you had to carry PTSD through, through your life at such an early age and get to the point where you were sitting on the floor uh, with a gun to your head to understand that you were suffering from PTSD. Would you, I'm sure that you also recognized that you were having depression and probably anxiety and everything yep. associated with those kind of mental health challenges. 
had you had you made a had you made yourself aware of those any time prior to that about being depressed or full of anxiety or anything like that or am I? I don't think I ever put a name to it. Uh, you know, it, back back in you know really the 2010s, right? Like the or the 2000s, right? Between 2000 and 2010, which is where most of my battle was really fought. It wasn't even a conversation, you know, we, social media didn't expose us to depression and PTSD and anxiety and all these things that, you know, you jump on TikTok and you can literally get into depression talk or anxiety talk or PTSD talk, right? Like there's whole realms of these things on social media now where back then it was just not a word, right? Depression, you know, depression was taboo. Like you have depression, like get over it. Right. And so I never associated myself with that, even though like looking back, I was, I was a walking zombie in, in many cases, right. In many, uh, many days of my life, like I was an actor. I was the best. I was, I could have been a golden globe actor back then. Right. I probably still could now because I just have that, that practice. Um, there were people, you know, the, speaking of this, I did a podcast a long time ago, uh, back in 2020, um, on my friend's podcast, who was in the same class as me, the day I, I almost committed suicide, my suicide attempt, he was in the last class I left and he had a podcast and I talked about it. He never knew. And I, I told him for the first time on that podcast and it was a really interesting conversation because mm. I had forgotten. I had never told him that, um, it was that day. He never knew. Not once did he ever recognize that I was depressed, that I had PTSD, that I had anxiety. I was so, at that point in my life in, in 2015, I had become so adept at hiding my, my fundamental emotional aura, my, my energy, my, my feelings, all of it. I was so calm and collected during the day when people could see me that I didn't even realize I was lying to myself every day. That's how, that's how intricate it was into my personality. And I would go home and I would, you know, I'd hear a song on my way home and realize that I'm alone and I would, I would lose it. I would lose control and I would go home and I would cry. And I would, anytime I recognized that I was alone was the only time I, I allowed myself to feel anything. And it was never intentional. It was also, is almost always accidental. And, you know, I realized through, through all of that and, you know, the many conversations I've had since then is that the intention when you're dealing with trauma and PTSD is important, right? The, the intentional understanding of this situation and the processing of it, the feeling of it, the somatic kind of experiencing of it, uh, you know, not necessarily exposure therapy, but diving into what your body is actually trying to expose to you is fundamental. And if all you do is just become a, a let off valve, right? Where the pressure builds up and then it overflows and now you feel better. You're not actually feeling any better. You're just, you've just become so comfortable in the uncomfortable that you don't even know what comfortable is anymore. Yeah, it's almost like a functioning alcoholic. But yeah. from a different perspective. There's a lot of lot of forms of addiction out there and, and pain is one of them. Emotion is another. 
How did you, did you, um, why did you join the military? May I ask that? Hey, just a real quick reminder. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for being a part of the One More Thing Before You Go family. Please remember to subscribe and or follow us. We would greatly appreciate it. We do have an app that's available for you for free. You'll find it in the App Store or on Google Play. It is compliments of Superpass, our sponsor. Anything that you want to do with your business to take it to the next level, have an entertainment or an information hub in the palm of your hand, it's Superpass. It will give you the unique opportunity for everything. One more thing before you go. Please take the time to support us by subscribing, following, and visiting our unique merchandise store at beforeyougopodcast.shop. You'll find that link to the store in our website. It is beforeyougopodcast.shop. You can find our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. And one more thing, beforeyougo.com. You will find links to your favorite platform to listen to the show as well as the show notes for today's episode and contact information for our guest. And we appreciate you. Thank you for supporting and listening to us each and every week. To die. I, I wouldn't commit suicide. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't commit suicide. So I picked the next best, best thing, right? There was a war in Afghanistan. There was a war in Iraq. I was hoping I'd catch those, right? And, uh, you know, it certainly isn't the same anymore. Um, right. I, I don't maintain my service because I want to die. In fact, I don't want to die. I have a beautiful wife. I have a, a child on the way coming, coming in June. Um, I have a beautiful oh, stepson that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, sometimes it's hard to think about like what can happen to me with the job that I do right now. Um, but in the beginning, you know, I lied to a lot of people telling people I, I joined because of nine 11, I joined to serve my country. Wasn't any of that. I, I didn't want to be here anymore. And that was the, the only way that I saw that could do it in an honorable way that was different than my dad's choice. That's, um, that's a unique way of trying to solve your problem. Not that you had a problem, but you know, in your own mind, that's a very I unique a way to solve your problem. You know, to yeah. take it that way. So that way you didn't have to actually take the step and yeah. allow somebody else to do it for you. Um, do you think there's a lot of other individuals out there? I know that you have a huge following on TikTok that talks all about this. Um, do you think there's a large population out there that uh, have the same feelings that are walking around with them on a consistent basis? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've worked with people, you know, there are so many different kinds of self-harm. And I've worked with people that have eating disorders and their goal was, I'm just going to not eat my way into death. Um, I'm going to mm. self-harm my way into death. I, I, I know that alcoholism is going to take me. So I'm just going to live through that, right? Until, until I can't, right? I'm, uh, you know, drugs. Uh, it, there's just so many different forms of killing yourself. And people know it. Right. Some people know it so intimately that they they're willing, they're, they're willing, yep. you know, victims of it, of, of themselves. Um, and in many ways it's, you know, my stories, maybe it's unique, but realistically, I think it's, it's a, it's a pattern, right? I think well, there's a lot of people out there that, that choose something that may have a purpose that actively kills them and they know it. 
I agree with that. I've had some conversations with some interesting individuals that have um, triumphed over that tragedy. Um, yeah. One woman that actually had been molested and sexually assaulted since she was five years old until she was 22 years old and then went on a path of self-destruction. And yeah. she tried everything, drugs, alcohol, um, sexual behavior that wasn't right. I mean, yeah. she, that's her words. Uh, and and tried everything she could because she felt guilty, she felt ashamed, and she felt that it's all my fault. And um, she didn't have the, as she put it, she didn't have the guts to do it herself. So she tried to do it all these other different ways. And when it didn't work, she went, well, I guess I have a different purpose. And she came through it and came out of it. And now she she really has an organization that helps other men and women that have gone through the same thing. So hers came out with a positive, just like your situation. It came out with a very good positive. Um, yeah. In my old job, as I, as I told you before, and my listeners and viewers know I'm a retired police sergeant. I worked at a domestic violence task force for about four years. And we did the worst of the worst. Not that any of it is is good. All domestic violence is not good. Um, but we did the worst of the worst, the serial ones and so forth. And, you know, watching uh, young people kids that were caught in the middle of their parents' battles and stuff. I could see their desperation and their lost in their eyes. And luckily, you know, we, we got, were able to get a few of them out of that situation because if they would have been the same journey and the same path because they had the, the same abusive and, and uh, dysfunctional environment as they grew up. And, and it, as you did, you know, and, it, and some, not everybody comes through that. So obviously you, you did come through it in a very good way. And I think that, um, again, as we said earlier, something positive out of a, a negative. How did you, did you, what kind of help did you get when you first started to recognize that you were at a point either with depression or anxiety or or the, the suicide ideation? They, where did you go first? I went to four different people. Uh, you know, over, over three days, you know, after, after my suicide attempt, it was a, those three, those first three days were like, I don't know, the, the first three days after an invasion, they're the most critical, right? You, you're establishing a beachhead and you're trying to develop your, your supply routes and determining whether this is actually a viable option to, to continue. I started with that question of why, am I the way that I am? And the first thing that I recognized was you've never talked about it, right? You've never talked about the feelings. You've never talked about the emotions. You've never, you never talk about what you actually felt that day and what you've been feeling your entire life. You've never actually talked about suicide because that was the first part. I was like, you've never talked about suicide, but then it drove me to think about, you've never talked about that day. And you, yet you think about it every day. And that's where, that's where it really began is I, I needed to tell somebody I needed to talk, not for them, for me. And so I picked four people kind of strategically of like, I know I could probably tell these people anything and they would be safe people. And I started with my two best friends, Chris and Carrie at the time. Um, and I told them, I told them what happened. You know, at that time, it was a day before because I was thinking about this and I planned it out three days. They were the first day. And they were, you know, they were surprised and mortified because they, 
they were they couldn't have seen it coming but also at the same time they kind of knew it it was a possibility um and then i told i called my sister my sister was overseas um and i called her and told her about it and i told her i'm like you know don't don't say anything to mom i'm going to tell her tomorrow and i realized i couldn't speak to my mom and tell her that because it was just such a powerful conversation to to try and tell my mom who had lost her husband 19 years prior to the same thing that nearly killed you know her son three days ago and so i wrote a, i wrote a letter um as best i could explaining what i felt um and what what had happened three days ago and i i handed it to her and just broke down um and that was what i what i got from her was I think the thing that I needed the most throughout my life was I just needed someone to listen. I needed someone to hear me. Um, and it wasn't for them. I, I didn't want to share it because I wanted their opinion or I wanted to give it to them um, and tell, ask them what I thought or what they thought. I wanted to just give it away from me. I, I you know, I wanted it outside of my box. I wanted it outside of me. Um, and for the first time I was able to do that with all of them. Um, and I'm, I'm, I was profoundly appreciative of, of just having the ability to share that stuff and have those people validate me. Um, or if they didn't know how to validate me, just listen. Right. And, and I didn't have any expectations walking in of like, you need to say this, or you need to say this. I didn't have that. I didn't care. Right. I did it 100% for me. And it was the first time I think in my life that I ever actually made a choice for me. Right. Like with me in mind and, and the ultimate end goal was to help me move forward. I had made a lot of choices for my dad, for my mom, for my sister, for my friends, for family and for everybody else. That was the first time I think I really sat down with myself and said, you need to do this for you. If you want to live, you've got to be honest. You've got to be open and you've got to be willing to say, I don't know what to do. And I don't, I don't know what I need right now. And you got to start somewhere. Yeah, communication is key, I think. Yeah. Communication really is a first step into healing and and so forth. I'm sure that you, I know you, we're going to talk about it, but you, um, you became a coach and I'm sure that what you talk to your people about is communication is an important factor in, in healing and moving forward. So how did your mom take it? Uh, I mean, she was distraught, but she, I think she understood. I think she always knew. Right. But as a parent, how do you deal with that? How do you, yeah. how do you approach that? Especially with me? Like I was, I, at that at the time, 2015, I was an E5, so I was a sergeant in the the National Guard. I'd just been I just gone through a deployment, no scratches, uh, you know, no bumps, no bruises, no nothing. I had just survived a deployment, you know, to to one of the hardest uh, hardest places on the planet at the time, and I was about to come home and do. I was going to try Special Forces. I tore an ACL three days after I came home. So I, was, I, I completely lost, lost my, my mobility three days after a deployment where I had just, mm. you know, survived everything. And 
I went through an ACL reconstruction a month later, you know, recovered for a year, tore my right ACL, had to recover for another year, all while staying in the military and being kind of chastised by my leadership for not being good enough, right? Like I wasn't fit to do what I needed to do. And so I was a thorn in their side while I was recovering from both of these major injuries. And then a year after that right ACL, I tore my right ACL again and had a, a second reconstruction. So three years in a row, I was faced with ACL reconstructive surgeries, you know, and, and having to face every single year for three years in a row, <laughs> whether I was actually going to stay in the military or not, or if they were going to kick me out because I couldn't do my job. And I, you know, the pressure was on me and my mom was watching me this whole time and realizing like, I, like I recovered every single time and I came back and like last year, I'm 31, 31 years old. I went to sniper school and passed. Like I've, I've been through hard stuff, gone through these injuries and come back from them. And I've always had that tenacity, that mm-hmm. mindset of never, I will never die. Right. Like never say if, die, brother. Never say die. Right? Like, you know, I, I, I don't have, I don't know what that means to, to give up. And, and I've always had that, but, for the first time, my mom saw that in me, you know, I got to that point and it was, I think it was the first time in her life she had ever seen that out of me after all of it. You know, she had seen me in a place of, of, of such vulnerability that it was hard. It's hard for her. It's hard for me. It's hard for everybody, but it was, it was absolutely necessary for, it was absolutely necessary for me um, and I think it's only, it's only brought me and my mom closer throughout the years. That's a good thing. Cause I mean, you could have, back, you could have backslid a little bit, you know, yep. especially confronting with it like that again and brought up any kind of an emotion that would have turned, <clears throat> excuse me, turned you around. Um, yeah. so yeah, that was a good thing. Did you ever get, uh, uh, any professional help in regard to understanding your PTSD? Not in the traditional way not of, you know, going to therapy or anything like that. I, I dug into, you know, uh, I dug into this, things like this. I don't know if you can see it, but the body keeps the score. Um, so I went to, you know, I've always been an introvert and I don't want to go talk to people because I don't know how to verbalize things at the time. You know, I I just didn't have the knowledge and I didn't feel comfortable. So I wasn't going to, wasn't going to do that. So what did I do? I went to the thing that always spoke to me. I read Right. And, and at the time audible came out and I was like, yes, because I hate reading. Um, even though I, I still love to do it. I learned that listening was my thing. Um, you know, in YouTube before, before 2015 had always spoken to me, motivational speakers were speaking to me, you know, Eric Thomas and, and, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, Simon Sinek, all of these guys that were speaking these messages that were important, but always never getting to the real like dilemma, the real problems, right? They were talking about these important subjects, but there's always an underlying issue. And I, I found, you know, I found Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. I found, you know, Peter Levine's Waking the Tiger, uh, Gaber Mate's, uh, you know, When the Body Says No, you know, these books that are digging into trauma, digging into uh, like the the real issues behind mental mental health and mental illnesses and, uh, you know, 
where these problems really come from and, and recognizing for the first time, I'm like, this stuff is what speaks to me. Like I need to know how the body works. Um, and it was kind of a, a rugged path, but I, I read 50, 60 books in the first oh. year and a half, you know, on what does the body do with things like what I've been through. And I started to put the pieces together. I started to, you know, look at how communication matters, how expression matters, because I think, you know, you were talking about communication, communication second, because you need to learn how to express yourself to be able to communicate effectively. Mm. Right. You know, if you can't speak, if you can't write, if you can't express, right. Some people use art or music. Um, there's so many different things. If you can't just get it out, you're not speaking to anybody. You're not communicating to anybody. You're, you're commuting, you're communicating that you're a closed off box and expression is the beginning of the process. Communication is more closer to the end. Um, and that's what I started learning. I started putting those pieces together and I've always been a thinker. And, you know, after, after I started write, reading these books, I started realizing that there's not a book out there that talks about suicide in that way and in what it really means to, to dig into these, these situations, you know, these traumas, communication, expression, you know, it, nobody talks about that stuff, mm. or at least not when I, not when I started writing my book and that's where it all kind of began, you know, as a mental health coach and a, a writer is that after reading all these books, I'm like, I had to take 50, 60 books and put them all together to understand how to give my message, you know? Well, I mean, that's a good thing. I think, I think that it, when, I, when I say this, I know you'll understand. I, in my profession, um, I had to come to a realization that I suffered PTSD from my profession. Yeah. From my injury, yeah. I got pinned between a, a suspect's car and my patrol car, he tried to kill me, uh, number one. I went through seven operations because of it, number two. Um, I still have issues with it, number three. Uh, yeah. The death, the suicides, the murders, everything that I dealt with throughout my career, I couldn't go to a therapist and I didn't trust yeah. therapists because how do you tell a therapist what it feels like when you have to go in and pick up somebody that's without, I mean, everybody knows I'm an honest conversation here in an open one. How do you, how do you go in there and you talk about how you had to pick somebody up that'd been sitting in the water for three days dead yeah. and, and things like this they just don't understand it or they queeze out and they just don't want to yeah. hear that. They want to go a different route. So you, you have to find alternative methodology in order to help function within society back again yeah. within your own environment as well as society with regard to your trauma and whatever you had taken place. You had to work through a lot, I'm sure, going from six years old all the way through to where you're at now. But... Yeah. Our conversation, and for those of, of my listeners that just listen to this on the regular podcast, you know, I can tell you, you're, you're very relaxed, you're very confident, you're very to the point. And, yeah. and I appreciate that. I think that you, you've come through your journey um, really well, actually, uh, at least from this I, perception. I practiced lying for so much of my life that I don't have time for it anymore. So there, there's, there's no point in... Right not being honest. There's no point in not getting straight to the point. And, you know, I think that's, that's one of the things that 
is, is it's required for me at this point as part of my values and, you know, digging into how I've overcome this stuff. I had to come, I had to confront honesty. I had to confront the truth. And that is where, you know, that's why people become so comfortable with talking to me and working with me is because, you know, those, those, those moments that you talk about where you can't take this to a therapist. Well, it's a damn good thing. I'm not a therapist, right? Like I step outside of that, that zone of I'm uncomfortable with this conversation. I say, give it to me because right. I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying, you know, I'm going to take this and feel this, right? I'm going to feel with you. Absolutely. But I'm a I'm giving you the exact same space that I wish I had earlier. Which is good right. Thing. And, and so I create, I create communication as a space, not as an interaction where you can say anything you want with me, right? You can talk about anything you want with me and it might be hard. It might be the worst thing I've, I've, I've listened to kidnappings that became murders that became revivals, right? Where this, this person was kidnapped, killed, and then revived by the police when, when they found her. Um, and then I've listened to sexual assaults. I've listened to, you know, things like what you've been through, like picking up bodies and seeing people, seeing people dead. Uh, you know, I've seen, I've talked to people that have killed people, right. You know, in, in, in the line of duty, it's, hard conversations, but I don't, I don't need to take it, but you need to express it. And so my goal is not to take what you have to, what you're, what, what many people feel like they're thrusting upon me. And the reality is, is I'm not, I'm just not doing that. I'm giving you the space. I'm giving you the opportunity to share every feeling that, you know, you have to share, but you don't know where, you know, and I, I, I'm here to say like, you, you, you have to feel every feeling you've ever felt is valid. That's, that's what I call rationality, right? Is it logical? No. And that's what we have to get to. Our, our goal is to validate what is real, what is factual in our, in our story, in our narrative and invalidate the things that are destroying us, invalidate the things that we don't need anymore because we aren't in that place of survival mode when that moment happened. Right. And, and creating that space for people to have those conversations to express in whatever way they feel. I get emails, I get DMS, I get verbalization, like I get all of it. And, you know, all I can do is give you the space, right? It's, it's, it's up to you to have the courage to actually begin that expression. You know, Sounds like a very positive environment. What inspired you to go into coaching? Almost dying, right? Almost like, dying, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's that it's that reality of knowing if I never had it, there's got to be other people out there that don't have it right now as we speak. Um, and so, you know, I, I could have probably gone to school to be a therapist. I could I could be a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I see a huge gap in the mental health system that's crumbling in many ways to bring people into the fold. You know, there's so many people that go to therapy and say, I will never go back because my therapist said this, this person said this, I went through a re-traumatizing situation in a mental health hospital. Um, I was sexually assaulted in a mental health 
institution, this, I was this, and they'll never go back. And so do I want to do what I do now? Not necessarily, but I know nobody else is sitting here. You know, you know, I know the mental health, you know, professions are not looking at what I do and saying, this is safe. This is, this is acceptable. This is doable because it's not under the, you know, under the guise and the protection of the, the rules of that mental health profession, but it's functioning, it's working. And at some point I want to address that as a societal issue and say like, how can we create something that bridges the gap between lived experience and mental health professions that we can show people they still have a place to go. You know, something that someone like me that's detached from the system, but still has rules. Like I, I function with rules, right? I know that my position could absolutely hurt people. I absolutely know that. And I've worked with people that have actually been to people that have hurt them, that have told them to do crazy things, mm -hmm. right? And it's something that has to be understood and and be made very abundantly clear. Like I, when, when people work with me, I have boundaries, right? And if I don't have boundaries, that's a problem as a coach, right? Oh, because absolutely. you're, you're either going to get taken advantage of, or you're going to take advantage of people. And so I have very clear boundaries. I make sure that's known, but I do this fundamentally because I know people out there will not go to the mental health professionals. And well, so they'll come to me. I think it's more advantageous, in my personal opinion, to go to somebody um, that can empathize with me more than just understand, that can um, empathize with the fact that uh, they've either experienced it, they've been through something similar to that, and not read it out of a textbook. And yeah. I'm not discounting therapist or therapy or anything like that. I'm just, this is my personal opinion, and and I'm not a medical doctor, but... Um, my personal opinion is, is I would rather speak to somebody that can empathize with me, not just understand. And then, yeah. you know, say that I've been through there, I've been there, I know what you're talking about, I've had those feelings, and not read it out of a book. Yeah. You know, and say, well, according to page 12 on this book, this is what you're supposed to do. Right. You know, the situation. So, um, speaking of books, Let's talk about your book. Um, what motivated you to write a book? Did you ever, did you always want to be an author or was that just something that uh, evolved? You know, I, 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 at the, at a young age, I read books and I always felt like I could do it. I always felt like I could, I could share my story and talk about my story. I just didn't know how. And, and so I never really, never really became a, 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 a grand thought in my mind until after I started reading all these books and, you know, there's a whole bookshelf behind me that I have tons of, tons of books that I've read. And I've, I was like, I was looking at it and I'm like, I do not see a book here that talks about the things that I'm starting to understand, or at least puts it together, right? That I could read 12 different books and have them all kind of like, this all kind of makes sense. You know, I could support my idea with those books, but nothing ever put it together. And that's when I really started, a, you know, early 2020, even before I started TikTok, I was like, I'm going to write, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to make it about my life, but a, a, a you know, a focused self-development book that 
is guided around learning how to express yourself, learning how to build your own story, learning how to talk about the hard topics, where to begin, um, how to begin, you know, how to develop the the concept of uh, different words, you know, how to understand dif- definitions and connotations that we place upon things, um, and just dig into those 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 ideas that aren't really discussed in the healing process. Um, and that's where it really began. And as I started building on TikTok as well, uh, it really shaped itself. Uh, you know, TikTok was really a, a, probably one of the best moves I've ever made in terms of uh, making that book what it is today. TikTok really helped me dive into how to be, how to be a better writer, um, how to speak to my audience and how to help people a lot more. Um, and so TikTok really, uh, along with the pandemic, obviously I wrote my book in about six months in 90% of my book. I wrote in about six months because the pandemic just, you know, what else am I going to do? So I, I wrote a book. Gave the opportunity, which is really, I mean, yep. it's a good thing. Uh, how do you think social media plays into all this? Do you think that it is a detriment? Do you think it's, there is something of value to it? I mean, obviously from your perspective on your TikTok channel, it, it has a, a conversation that, engages people and connects with people to a perspective. Yeah. So do you, do you feel that all, of, all the social media aspects would be a benefit to somebody or detriment? It's both, right? And I think we need to have this conversation more often. Everything has good and bad connotations to it, right? And this is something I actually talk about in my book. It's like you can look at ignorance and say, ignorance can be a really good thing, right? Where you don't, you don't have to f- see that problem you know, that it, that see that this problem exists in the world. And so therefore you don't have to feel the stress, but most people look at it and say, ignorance is a bad thing. Like if I were to call, if someone were to call me ignorant, more often than not, a person being called ignorant would get upset. And the reality is, is like, we're looking at a, I'm looking at a camera right now. Well, I'm, Michael, do you know how that camera works? I do actually. Well, so you do, right? I don't. So I'm ignorant. Right. Like that's the reality is that we I'm looking at all sorts of things like I'm looking at lights. I'm looking at computer screens, looking at a keyboard. I don't know how these things work. And the reality is I'm ignorant. And so is everybody else, because I could point out something that you do not understand, that you do not know. And yet we place this concept of this is fundamentally bad. Social media is the same thing. Right. We look at social media and the, the historic uh, narrative has been that social media is the worst thing out there, right? It can be, right? It can spread misinformation and disinformation. And you obviously, you know, you obviously with Russia and Ukraine right now, you see all sorts of craziness happening. You see the the conspiracy theories, you see the craziness of what is being put out on, on social media. What you might not see is someone might message me or another coach or a friend or somebody else on social media talking about, you know, they, they might send a video uh, talking about suicide. And for the first time, they actually recognize what this person's actually saying to them. Um, you know, for the first time, someone might recognize that they, they might need to get diagnosed with PTSD or they actually recognize that they have been through trauma um, for the first time, or they found a poem that makes them feel something for the first time and, and remember that they are grieving. Um, 
And what I've found is that s- social media can be used for profound good. Is it always used for that? No, but it can be. And if we, mm. if we don't use it for good, we, we fail to, to really understand how important it is. And so for everybody, it can be good. For most people, it's probably not good, right? Like there's, there's a lot of things on social media that will, that will be detrimental to your process. And honestly, just scrolling on TikTok or scrolling on Instagram or scrolling on Facebook is detrimental to you, right? If, you know, for me, I don't scroll, right? I recognize that the days that I'm scrolling, I'm more unhappy. So I don't do it. I post, right? I use it for a purpose and that's it, right? I, I look at the trends. I might scroll for 10 minutes just to see, hey, is there any, any trends that I can make a video about me? Um, no. Okay. I'll just make my own video. And so it's 100% purpose driven. It's a good thing in my life. Right. Um, I do have the days where I'm sucked in, right? Because it's like that. It can be like that and it can be a bad thing even for me. Um, and it's, it's about building that, that recognition, that self-awareness to say, this is getting bad and I, I need to repurpose what I'm doing with it. Well, and I, and I, I like the fact that from your perspective, you know, and others can do the same thing. I do belong and follow some Twitter accounts and some Instagram accounts and TikTok accounts that are very positive and it allows us to connect and engage in a very positive way and not on a bunch of false rhetoric and, you know, the constant badgering or, or bullying or anything like that. I don't tolerate any bullies on there. Uh, that's the cop in me, the dad in me, and the yeah. husband in me. I don't tolerate bullies. So usually I'll report a bully if they're on there. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that um, social media can be used in a very positive way, just like it, it can be used in a very negative way. And uh, that's a, a choice that we have to make when we when we involve ourselves within social media. Um, your it, podcast. I want to add. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to add to that once because there's there's one thing that I've noticed a trend, um, you know, over the last like 20, 20 years of the internet, right? The internet itself and social media specifically has given exposure to things that have never been exposed before. Oh yeah, like things things like trauma. And this is probably very apparent in your, your line of work, right? The, the, probably the influx of things like, uh, like sex crimes. Uh, and you've probably, you ha- you probably saw in your time frame as a cop, uh, a cyber division, right? It, yeah. Um, it, it was just starting actually when, when I was a cop, it was just getting into the sex right. crimes and, and, uh, child sex trafficking and, and trafficking yeah. actually. And that stuff, wasn't exposed before the internet, right? It maybe it was, but it was so rare to, yeah. to actually see it exposed. But now you're you're seeing you're seeing these things. You're seeing sexual assault. You're seeing sex trafficking. You're seeing these things actually exposed. You're seeing domestic violence uh, exposed and abusers exposed. You're seeing uh, not necessarily an agreement with it necessarily, but the idea of narcissism, right? Uh, is it? I think it's overused right now, but I think that's kind of the pendulum swinging into the into the opposite direction. Now I think it'll swing back and we'll start realizing what is narcissism, what are narcissistic tendencies versus what is narcissism, um, and and 
but but that wasn't exposed before. And so women never had a voice in many ways. Certainly there's men that go through the same thing, but the the violence isn't there like it's there with men as abusers. And that's that's really uh I think something that has been exposed far more in the last 20 years than it's ever been in human history. I agree. Um, and it's that many some people will look at that and say it's a bad thing. I you know, I disagree. I think it's a remarkably good thing and it it brings it brings empathy to a society that has been lacking it for a long time. I agree. It brings empathy, compassion, understanding, and it can educate yep. you, it can inspire you, it can motivate you. When you yep. see you have opportunity to get out of a situation, you see the uh, inspiration to get out of something, out of a situation, it motivates you to move forward or do better in your life. I, I agree with those aspects of that. Um, I, and, I am happy with the way that uh, certain aspects of the internet have evolved. Yeah, and it and it's also exposed people that aren't necessarily bad, but have problems. It exposes them to themselves, and that's, you know, I I I have a hard time saying that. Uh, you know, I think society struggles with giving people second chances, um, you know, because especially now with the internet, the internet is forever, right? Yep. Um, once it's out there, it's out there. And, and so we struggle with giving people a second chance, but we see people that are making the attempt, recognizing that they are, they are wrong or they were wrong and now right. are, are working actively to share their story and overcoming this wrong and trying to be better. And you're seeing, I think a, a different definition of what strength is, what, you know, courage is, and, and you're seeing just different, uh, different definitions of things because of the internet and because of how cultures kind of transform through social media. So I think that's, that's also a good thing also can be a bad thing, but I think no, mostly I good. Yeah, I agree with that. I do. Um, well, I also, Look, the internet allows us to have a communication, have a talk or conversation right here, sitting across from each other, theoretically. And, um, yeah. you know, you're, you're back east, I'm on the west coast. And uh, this has allowed us to have a conversation as if we were sitting across the table in a coffee shop. Right. Yep. So, and, and again, would, I'm sorry. Wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. Oh, no, would not have happened. In fact, I, I have to make... <laughs> I have to say this just on a lighter note. It's like um, my Apple Watch. I, I grew up when I was a yeah. kid, I was watching, and you may not recognize this, but this expresses my age a little bit. <laughs> I used to watch uh, Dick Tracy on the yep. cartoons and in the comic books, right? And he, what did he have on his hand? He had a communicator. He could talk. He had a FaceTime, you know, and I'm going, <laughs> hey, I want one of those one of these days. So I have an Apple Watch. Cause right. <laughs> Back when I was a kid, it was only in the comic books. <laughs> yep. It's crazy. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, let's talk about your podcast really quick. And then uh, 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 we can then talk about how to get your book. Yeah. So you do have a podcast. It's called The Dylan Experience. And uh, tell me about that. It is, it is a, well, one, it's a work in progress because, you know, as you know, as being a podcast host yourself, it's, it always seems to be in flux, uh, you know, especially with, I, I called it the Dylan experience because I wanted it to be something that I figured out with time. 
Um, I'm up to like 34 episodes now. I've, I've done solo podcasts. I've done, uh, I had a co-host for a little bit and then he, he got busy. And so I started to take over. Uh, it's, I talk about mental health. I talk about life. I talk about everything that I can, everything that I know. We've talked about social media, leadership, um, just anything and everything that I feel is relevant in terms of my life, or I have interviews with people who, you know, much like me have overcome a, a plethora of different experiences. I want to get, you know, good people to share their stories. I want to share my story. I want to show people that, you know, we can have conversations about hard topics. I was, you know, I had a, a, a woman of color, uh, on the podcast the other day, her, her name's Sarita. And we had a conversation about racism and, and being real about it and talking about it and opening it up and understanding that I'm a white man and she's a black woman and having that dialogue and opening that conversation up and realizing that we both have a lot in common and, and there's no, there's the only difference is we came from different cultural backgrounds and, you know, I want to have conversations like that and push into territory that's uncomfortable, certainly. Um, but I, I just want to have the conversation, right? I want to, I want to show people that they have a voice that they can express themselves, that they can talk about, you know, anything from, you know, sexual violence to, you know, your favorite book or leadership or, you know, social media, much like we're talking here. Um, I just want to show people it's, it's possible to have these conversations. And be part of your experience. Yeah. Your book, Defy the Darkness. How can they find it? It's on Amazon, target.com, Barnes and Noble, uh, pretty much any, any major outlet you can find it, uh, online. It's not always available in stores, but Audible is, I will say Audible is probably the best place because I did a lot of off, off script discussions because I, I did the Audible after I wrote the book, added a bunch of stuff. Um, I added probably 45 minutes worth of off script, uh, stuff on there. But uh, yeah, Audible is a, a really, a really great uh, place to get it. I did the audio form for it. So if you like my voice, well, you're going to hear me for five hours. So there hope you, you like it. You've got a coaching business and you've got the book and you've got your uh, Dylan experience connection on your website. Yep. Again, you help us out with what that is? Uh, the, the coaching business or the no, website? The website. Uh, website's real simple. It just talks about my book, my podcast, my favorite books, uh, talks about my coaching, um, just about anything that I'm, I'm kind of doing at the time. I'm probably going to be pushing out some online courses coming up, uh, uh, on stepping into healing, um, diving into how to build your own values, how to step into like pain, perspective, purpose, power. It's one of my courses that I'm going to be working on in the future, uh, anything relevant to, to what I'm doing on social media or anything like that's going to be there. And it's DylanSessler.com, correct? Yep. yep. I'll make sure those are in the show notes and that, uh, that way they can have an easy access to finding you and how to get a hold of you as long as you go along with your social media connections and everything. They're all in the bio on uh, BeforeYouGoPodcast.com uh, so they can have an easy one-stop way to come find you. Uh, okay. This is one more thing before you go. And uh, do you have any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners and our viewers? You are the only person 
that will live with yourself 100% of your life. And when you really think about that, that means you have to be responsible enough to recognize what you need. Nobody else is going to do it for you. Nobody else is going to be there from beginning to end. And so they're, they might judge you. They might tear at you. They might attack you. They might love you. But you have to love you if you want to live with yourself until the end. So learn how to do it and take ownership of that. Excellent words of wisdom. Dylan, thank you very much for sharing your journey with us. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for coming through this on the positive end and turning that into something positive for other people, inspiring, motivating, and educating them to move forward in life. I appreciate you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.